chapter 9. We're going to talk about the next passage that's often quoted by Christmas time. Chapter 9, verse 1. The gloom will be dispelled for those who are anxious. So, he's talked about everybody being destroyed. And now he's looking at the aftermath of the destruction. The ruined city has been destroyed. And now he's talking to the people in the faithful city. And this is what he says to them. The gloom will be dispelled from those who were anxious. In earlier times, he humiliated the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But now he brings honor to the way of the sea, the region beyond the Jordan, and the Galilee of the nations. Some of your translations literally go as far as say, the Gentiles. And that's what he's basically saying here. The way of the sea and the region of the Galilee are the non-Israelites. They're the, the foreigners. They're the people that after Israel was scattered out of the land, the people from all the nations of the Assyrian Empire were scattered into the land of Israel. So Israel, that used to be the chosen people, Zebulon and Naphtali, those are tribes that lived in and around the Galilee region of Israel. They were all Israelites. And God said, in the past, as in when the Assyrians came in 722, I took Israel in the north and I brought them down, and I destroyed them. But a time is coming when this land has now been repopulated by the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrian Empire populated with people from all the nations, and now the Galilee and the way of the sea, that road that goes from Egypt all the way up to Damascus and then to Mesopotamia, is now completely filled and occupied with foreigners. A day is coming when I will honor them. Now, all your Bibles say Gentiles, because this is a prediction fulfillment. And the prediction fulfillment is a day is coming when these people that live in this region are going to be honored and the people of Israel will not. And what do we see when we get to the Gospels and Jesus comes? Who is it that mostly responds to him? The Gentiles that lived around the Galilee region. And so this is a prediction fulfillment. Israel, there's a day that is coming where I'm seeing your pattern and your behavior and your constant rebelling and your constant rejection. And a day is coming when I will leave you completely behind and I will move to the Gentiles. And this is why Paul says to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But then Paul then later then says, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, free or slave, man or woman, wealthy or poor. There's just only those who are in Christ. Now, we'll talk about that a lot more because that's way more complicated than just that simple statement. But we've already been hinting at the real people of God are the people of faith. Faith, which includes obedience and repentance. Obedience and repentance. So this is what he's saying. A day will come when the Gentiles will mostly respond. Now, remember the word Gentile is literally the Greek word for just the nations. So anytime you see the nations... Think New Testament Gentiles. Anytime you see Gentiles, think First Testament nations. They're exactly the same thing. The people walking in darkness will see a bright light that shines on those who live in the land of the deep. In some of your Bibles, it says that the dawn will rise up. So they will see the dawn. You will be enlarged the nation. You give them great joy. They rejoice in your presence as harvesters rejoice, as warriors celebrate when they divide up the plunder for their oppressive yoke and the club that strikes their shoulders, the cudgel the oppressor uses on them. 
You have shattered it as the day of Midian's defeat. Indeed, every boot that marches and shakes the earth and every garment dragged through blood is used as fuel for the fire. So it says that we have just witnessed God coming and destroying the ruined city. The ruined city has been judged. It has been condemned. It is no more. In the purifying fire, all that is left is the silver, the gold of the faithful city, the new city. And so you were in the darkness of the purifying fire, but now you're in the dawning light of the faithful city. You were once in the gloom of the purifying fire, but now you were in the brightness of the faithful city. And how did this happen? God uses Syria as his army, as his warrior. And then he says this, but who is really the commander of the Assyrian army? It's Yahweh. It's Yahweh. When Sinanacherib thought he was all that and nobody could ever stop him, God sent Isaiah to him in chapter 19 of 2 Kings and said, Have you not known? Do you not, have you not heard? Have you not known? I ordained you long ago. I'm the one that made you powerful. I'm the one that directed your path to judge and bring down the nations for their sins. And so does the hammer brag about its ability, not knowing that the man wields it with his own hand? And so that's the idea. Yahweh is truly the commander. So how did all this happen? And that's where Isaiah explains it in verse 6 and says, For a child has been born to us. A son has been given to us. His shoulders responsibility. He shoulders responsibility and is called extraordinary strategist, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. His dominion will be vast and will bring immeasurable prosperity. He will rule on David's throne and over David's kingdom, establishing it and strengthening it by promoting justice and fairness. From this time forward and forevermore, Yahweh's intense devotion to his people will accomplish this. This is about Jesus. This is a prediction fulfillment. And we know that because it says that he will be the descendant of David. That automatically says this is happening in the future. This is happening in the future. However, this doesn't exactly scream Jesus God like we think it does. It says, for to us a child is born. This is a direct prophecy of Jesus, but it's not a Christmas prophecy of Jesus. Christmas is the beginning, but this prophecy is actually about the second coming. Yes, the king was born, but this isn't describing the birth of a child. This is for us, a child is born. But then what does it describe? It describes a king, a Davidic descendant, who bears all the responsibility of all the governments and all the world on his shoulders. Was that true of Jesus in his first coming? No. The equivalent of this, of saying that he has the responsibility of all the governments of the world, is what Revelation says when it says, King of kings and Lord of lords. That he is the king of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords. Now remember, that's not original to the Bible either. The first person that ever used that phrase really in a wholesale marketing kind of a way, propaganda, was Cyrus II of the Persian Empire. Because he conquered so many kings, he called himself the king of kings and the lord of lords. 
And then Caesar Augustus started calling himself that. And Augustus, Julius Caesar, and then Caesar Augustus after him. And so the, um, John, when in God and John are calling Jesus King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that once again, they're using a socio-political term that the Roman government uses of their Caesars. It's not a biblical term. It's a pagan kingship term that they're using. And they're saying that Jesus likes Caesar and that he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But as you read the context of what Jesus does in Revelation, you realize that he blows up the box on what you know as King of Kings and Lord of Lords as Julius Caesar. And he goes way beyond that in a much cooler, much more awesome way than Julius Caesar Augustus ever did or Cyrus II ever did with those terms. Many of the terms, good news, that's a Roman Empire term. It's a term that the Roman Empire used to announce the new king. That's why the, the, the angels say to the shepherds, good news. There's a, your king is born. He's announcing the arrival of king. These are all terms that they're using from the culture, but then they're blowing them up in a bigger scale. And so he's saying, he, this Davidic king, won't just rule over Israel. He will rule over the world. He will call wonderful counselor. Now, that does not mean that Jesus is going to be a great therapist. (laughs) Although he is a great therapist, the idea here is a military context and it's extraordinary strategist. As in, he knows exactly how to attack and rout and destroy the enemies of the world. And for us, we know that in the context of Hosea and Micah, that's bringing into all evil in the world, all pagan kings, all rebellion. And he knows exactly how to military strategize, how to deliver his faithful people from those enemies. It's a brilliant general who wins every single battle that he fights, eliminates every enemy that he goes up against, and delivers every city and every people that he sets out to rescue with no no poor record. Mighty God. That doesn't mean God. Because David in Psalms, God says, you are a God to my people. And in Exodus chapter 7, God says to Moses, go to Egypt and I will make you like God. I will make you God. He doesn't say like, actually. He says, I will make you God to Pharaoh. Meaning that when you come up to Pharaoh, who thought he was God, but he has no power, I'm going to work through your words and I'm going to work through your body and do miracles. I'm going to use you in an absolutely unique and holy way that no king or prophet has ever been used before. And it will be as if God is standing in front of Pharaoh speaking, as if God himself is doing it. And we see this because when Moses is doing the miracle, so to speak, the Magi responding and saying, this is the finger of God. They recognized it. So this phrase, mighty God, was used of David. It was used of Moses. And nowhere would we ever say that God was saying they were God. But what it means is that he is their representative. That this Davidic king is going to speak and act in such a way that matches up so perfectly with who God is, it will be almost like God is right there with you, speaking and acting in front of you. Everlasting Father, 
An everlasting father is a term that kings often use. They were not just your king and warrior, but they were also a shepherd or a father to their people that took care of them. I remember that um, Odin, the father of Thor, is even called the All-Father. And so that father language is used. Now, everlasting means the word everlasting. They didn't have a concept of eternity like we do. For them, they just meant, they just saw as a long living king. They saw this as like Amaziah, who was a godly king and reigned for 52 years. Reigning for 52 years is a long time in the ancient world. People don't last that long. And so that's the idea. This king will be around for a long time. He'll be the prince of peace. He will bring peace. His dominion will be vast and it will be immeasurable in prosperity. He will rule on David's throne and over David's kingdom, establishing it, strengthening it, promoting it, and justice and fairness or justice and righteousness will flow out of him. Now that's important because remember in Amos, God said, I'm sick and tired of your sacrifices. I'm sick and tired of your worship songs and your celebrations. You know what true worship is? True worship is to let justice flow out of you like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. And remember, I defined those words. That word justice means two things. That you actively step in and stop the oppression of people that you see. When people are being mocked, you defend them. When people are being persecuted, you defend them. When they're being oppressed, you defend them. When they're being robbed and cheated, you defend them. And the other thing that it means is that when people have needs, social justice needs, poverty, um, non-representation in courtrooms and that kind of stuff, you step in and you provide it for them. Or you point them somewhere where they can get it. Okay? It doesn't mean that you fix all the problems of the world. It means that you step in and you at least point them somewhere where they can find it. Like, hey, I know where the homeless shelter is. Or, hey, I know where you can get a job here. I know somebody can get you connect. Or I can do that. That's justice flowing out of you continuously. And righteousness is I live rightly with everybody. That I don't do anything to intentionally destroy your life or hurt you or tear you down. That I build you up. I bring mourning to your darkness, so to speak. And that's the idea. And what he's saying is, Amos says, that's what true worship looks like. That's what true obedience looks like. That's what a true godly life looks like on a daily level. And then he comes and he says and picks up on Amos's language and he says, this king will do that. This king will not just conquer the world to set up his own self-glorifying kingdom where he, he's the new oppressor. It's like, well, who cares who the dictator is now? We're just exchanging one for another. If you talk to people in like Dominican Republic or um, Cuba or like Fidel Castro or Iraq, it's like, I mean, okay, you changed their name, but it's still the oppressive dictator, the corrupt government. Okay, it doesn't matter. Like our life hasn't changed that much. And they're all promising peace, but they never offer it. And he's saying this king won't. This king, see, Julius Caesar Augustus brought peace, but he brought it under the boot of Rome. He brought peace because everybody was scared to do anything. It's kind of like there's peace in the home of an abusive father, only because you know if you rock the boat, the father will beat you down to the ground. And so the house is peaceful. But that's not real peace. And so what he's saying is, this king will bring peace. And most people are thinking, oh, yeah, right. That's what all kings say. And they all brought peace. But they brought it in a we're walking on eggshells kind of a sense. But then he goes on and says, no, because justice and righteousness will flow out of him. 
It'll be real peace. It'll be real peace. He will actually establish his rule to stop injustice and meet needs and to live rightly with everyone and to help people live rightly with everyone else. From this time forward and forevermore, Yahweh's intense devotion to his people is what's going to accomplish this. This can be read two different ways. It can be read Yahweh's intense devotion to you will make this happen, or it can be read that his passion and devotion to God is what will fuel him. Which one is legitimate? God's devotion to you and his promises will bring this king about one day. Or it can be this king will be driven by his desire to please Yahweh, not his desire for power or fame or fear of being conquered. The thing is, is that Jesus did come and do this. But he didn't do this in his first coming, right? This doesn't sound like first coming. This is second coming. So to us, a child is born begins at Christmas, but the the government on his shoulders, the mighty extraordinary strategist, that is yet to come. That is yet to come. We saw the brilliant mind of the strategist of Jesus, but we haven't seen it fully executed in a world dominion kind of a sense until Revelation. And so that's what he's predicting. That's what he's looking forward to. Now, once again, yes, this doesn't mean that he's God. This doesn't mean that his kingdom is everlasting. No Jew would read that and see that in that way. They would interpret it in the context of how it's used of the other kings and prophets. But once again, this is a prediction fulfillment and that it'll literally happen, like it said, but it also is a typology because Christ is going to explode that on that and he's not just going to become mighty God to them because God is working through him. He will literally be mighty God because he is God. And he will not just have an everlasting long reign because he's really godly, but he will literally reign for all eternity. And so it's one of those examples as a Jew reading this, you can't see all that. And you can find many passages in the Bible that use the same language that we would not say as God. But looking back, you can say the box was exploded and Jesus went way beyond any of this language. Does that make sense? I've given you, so here we can see in chapter 7 and chapter 9, chapter 7 is an example of a typology prophecy that's not prophesying something future. Rather, the gospel writers are looking back and saying it's like that, but even cooler and better and greater with Jesus. And then chapter 9 is giving us a prediction fulfillment where it literally is pointing to a future ruler that we can literally look forward to but Jesus, once again, becomes even greater than anything that that passage even seems to be pointing to. Does that make sense? And those are the two ways that prophecy often works on those levels in the Bible.